Hello and welcome to Getting It Down, capturing the moment of creativity. I'm your host, Andy Gordon, and in this podcast I chat with creative people and ask the questions, what is creativity? How do you be creative and how do you help people express that creativity? These are questions that might be hard to put your finger on, but when you do, you can feel the pulse. So sit back, make yourself comfortable and listen in. In this episode of Getting It Down, we're in the studio of Brian Rapsey, visual storyteller, director, camera and editor. Thank you very much for having me here, Brian. It's a pleasure, Andy, and it's great to have you back here. Yeah. This has been the scene of a couple of uh, rather enjoyable evenings. Yeah. House concerts. House concerts, yeah, yeah. But we're in a different part of the house. We're in where you work, and it's just it's full of excitement, technology. How do you feel when you're here? I can't have enough time in here because I love it so much. Mm. Um, and, you know, inevitably I have to leave and go and join the family in the evening. And, um, you know, I just, you know, there's so much I could be doing in here. The, the space here is, um, well, I'm a, mostly a, a photographer and a filmmaker. And so there's a, an editing suite mm. here. Mm. Um, but also my library of books, if you look around, a lot of them are about you know, script writing or editing or uh, photography, art, whatever. Mm. And I could sit around all day looking at these books. And uh, I've got my guitar and harmonica stuff here as well. Yeah. It's a it's such a beautiful space. <laughs> I think it's so... Um, we're lucky if we can have a place where... It feels right to to be creative, and where it it fuels, I guess, for want of a better way of putting it. Yeah, well, we're here in the studio where I spend, you know, most of my life working, um, but also you've been in the house as well, mm. and um, it's a house that my partner Fee and I ha- um, designed and built. We we chose this block of land because it was north facing, yeah. um, so we could build a solar passive house, and uh, and it's kind of built to our desire, and we feel free to do with it as we please. Mm. Hang all sorts of good and you know some people might think bad art and paint <laughs> the walls. Yeah. You know, in the last couple of weeks we've we've repainted the kitchen. Uh, uh, and our bedroom, you know, what we think are fabulous colors. And, yeah. you know, we just get so much pleasure yeah. out of it. And and we love um, lamps and lights and fairy lights and all that kind of stuff. Mm. So, um, you know, we've filled the spa- that space as well with, mm. uh, with uh, stuff that gives us that kind of pleasure of being at home. Mm. Yeah. Mm. That's not all we're about. You know, my partner Fee is uh, an academic uh, and a lot of her um, academic concerns and uh, obsessions have to do with um, politics, gender equality, mm. animal ethics, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I don't know if you know this about me, but my uh, I did a, a BA in history and anthropology. Mm. Um, 
of theater studies and other things as well. And, you know, that sort of stuff really, I think, informs uh, my work and what I'm interested in mm. as well at its at its base. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't surprise me. Um, can you remember the first image that you saw that moved you? Is it, is it is there a point in your life where you saw something represented and just it clicked something in you? I don't think I can recall an image in particular. What I can say, though, is that in Canada, where I grew up until I was 16, my parents were both involved in the theatre. My dad used to run small-town theatre colleges um, in various places uh, in regional Canada, starting off, well, he finished his master's in um, Vancouver, and then we lived in Antigonish in uh, Nova Scotia. Oh, my goodness. So my first memories... From one side to the other. Yeah, yeah, that's right. My first memories are of being, you know, in that... um, in those in that maritime province, and in wow. probably hearing music, um, yeah. in the vibrant music scene there, but basically spending time in the wardrobe because my mum always worked in wardrobes, and my dad was always um, teaching drama and English or rehearsing plays, um, and so I, you know my my first m- kind of memories of art aren't ne- aren't necessarily the image yeah, seeing really. an image and being moved by an image but by experiencing uh drama and plays yeah. um so one of the really early things that i remember is a clown circus show that they put on um i think called the Canaduck clown circus and the clown's name was Pepe Le Pew mm-hmm. and um there was all sorts of wonderful um, clowning going on, going on in it, mm. uh, and I just remember that having that kind of magical, um, imaginative, theatrical mm. sort of space mm. that we kind of experienced, and you know, in in seeing scenes often rehearsed, I think, and. And uh, being in uh, the 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 wardrobe area with my mum, you know, because that's you know where we had to be a lot of the time mm. after school or whatever. Mm, mm. Did how did you feel in that situation? Um, did it feel normal or was it exciting? Or we were totally naturalised to it. Yeah. Um, it just felt normal. Yeah. Uh, after we migrated to Australia and years later I went back to visit my friends, my friends were like, you know, you guys are so out there, so different from, you know, <laughs> the regular sort of small town Canada, um, you know, kids on the, in, you know, in mm. suburban Canada. Mm. Um, so we didn't really question it at all. No. Yeah. Do you think that in a funny kind of way that childhood um, made you pursue this path or do you think it was in you anyway? I mean... I think in terms of pursuing this path, all sorts of disparate elements 
kind of came together mm. eventually mm. over a long period of time for me to end up following this path. Mm. Um, I, I think probably the main thing is that my whole family love and have lived by um, music, you know, listening to music, love of music and, mm. uh, and, and theater. Um, my dad, when we migrated to, to Australia, became a, reinvented himself as a scriptwriter. Mm. Um, my mum ended up being the wardrobe mistress at the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts. Right. Um, and so we'd always be talking about, you know, mm. what they're doing or things that my dad was writing or books that we're reading uh, and sharing uh, albums that we we loved listening to. Mm. So, and that's what we still do, you know, when we get on the on the phone, you know, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to my mum or my sister or whatever. And my partner, Phil, asked me, well, you know, how are they all going? And I said, uh, <laughs> I like, we talk about <laughs> <laughs> the new Bob Dylan album that just came out yeah, or, yeah. Um, or uh, a show that my mum saw with, you know, really great sort of production design or yeah. that sort of stuff. Yeah. It's weird, isn't it? Are they still in WA? They are, yes. Mm. How old were you when you came to Australia? I was 16. Oh, okay. Well, look. Yeah. And how did you feel about that? I think you're going to like this part of the story. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> I loved it. When I finished year 12 in Canada, uh, usually go off to college or university or whatever. Well, we came to Australia. It was a sort of a natural break. Right. I was a bit pissed that I had to do year 12 over again. Yeah. Um, but it was like a natural time for me to leave the small town that we were in. And we went to Perth and that, that was like a big, a big town for me. I guess so, yeah. For everybody else in Perth that I made friends with, it was a small town. Mm. Um, but... My dad had come a year before to work on a film on sabbatical on a year off from his teaching. And um, he worked with my uncle, uh, who was producing this film. Um, and the composer uh, for it was uh, Lucky Oceans. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. wow. Uh, and so my dad, for those of you who don't know who Lucky Oceans is, you can explain. Well, an incredible um, multi-instrumentalist, really, I guess, but um, certainly a, uh, a guitar player, a pedal steel guitar player, I guess it is, isn't it? Um, but also he was in a band in America called... Asleep at the Wheel. Asleep at the Wheel. And um, had an incredible career with that. But in Australia, we know him as a broadcaster. So for very many years, he had a show called The Planet. And he has, or it seems to have, an encyclopedic knowledge of music. And certainly anyone who was into music just found that show like the Bible, really, wasn't it? Yes. You know? And and so when we arrived in Australia, Lucky was on tour. And okay. so we... While we searched for a house, we lived in his place. 
Oh my goodness! <laughs> and flick through his record collection, <laughs> and and then um, and then eventually, me and a couple of friends from the high school that I was at, Hollywood High, which which is famous for where Michael Hutchins went to school. Oh really? Um, uh, we started up up a little ragged. Um, blues and rock and roll band oh, yeah. and eventually ended up being a support for Lucky's band at the time, which was the Jam Tarts and the Nancing Quartet. <laughs> and was he then based in WA too? Yeah, yeah, he's still there. Yeah. What I wonder what brought him to Australia? I think to get off get off the road yeah. in the grueling touring um, and probably not family-friendly yeah. musician's life. I get the idea that the Asleep at the Wheel guys were pretty wild too. Well, I was also friends with uh, Lucky's wife, Christine, and who's a photographer, and judging by the photographs that she took, yeah, I get that impression. Yeah, 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 certainly. Um, I didn't know that when I was younger, but I think I'm actually talking to John Kane about touring America and coming across those guys, I think, became quite apparent they, they went hard. <laughs> so um, you finish school over here and then you go to college, you do history and anthropology, and creative arts. Bit of theatre studies, Bit yeah. Bit of theatre studies. Um, and then you have to move out into the world or you, I guess by that stage you desperately want to. Um, what did you start doing? So I finished my BA at at the University of Western Australia, and then I had a year. I didn't want to go and do more study. I, I was sort of exhausted by that, mm. um, and I wasn't sure how to put it all together. I'd always been sort of torn in different directions, I'd say, creatively. Mm. Uh, I was taking a lot of photographs. You were by that stage? Yeah. Uh, I'd, made a, uh, I'd made a friend... Uh, um, Matthew Dwyer, uh, who, um, and we started going out on the streets together. And he becomes it, a lifelong friend, doesn't he? Yeah, hmm. yeah. And you know, sadly, know. my friend Matthew died about uh, a year and a bit ago. Hmm. Um, you might have heard it on the news, but he actually hmm. fell off a cliff hmm. um, while taking photographs hmm. um, down southern WA. Um, yeah, so we just had this friendship mm. where we'd, um, go out taking pictures together and partly as an excuse to go out and explore and, and as a foil for meeting people. Um, he was a, a real extrovert and I kind of followed on his tales there and, mm. and so we started sort of practicing that craft together. Were you both taking similar photos or was it remarkable how different the photos that you were both outputting were? At that time, not necessarily. Mm. Uh, I think we were quite similar. Mm -hmm. But over time, uh, we really digressed in mm. terms of um, what we were uh, photographing. Mm. Uh, he became best known for um, taking wildlife photographs, mm. um, even though he had quite a, a broad um, range of 
of subject matter mm. where eventually I I became more obsessed with uh, filmmaking and mm. cinematography and, and sort of narrative storytelling yes. that way. Yes. Um, and people too, I think you... Yeah. I, I, I love photographing people mm. and in a more or less observed documentary way. I like to capture people kind of uh, unwittingly. Yes, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's, what I, um, that's what I love the most, taking photographs. But what I, what I say is that I, I, I tend to view that photography, stills photography, I conceptualize it and rationalize it to myself, whether it's true or not, as kind of practice for doing cinematography. Oh, how interesting. Right. From a framing point of view or light or... Um, how do you mean? Well, all of the above. It, filmmaking mm. is a multi... It's so multidisciplinary. There's mm. kind of like uh, so many different levels of... Um, things going on mm. with it that particularly in the sort of one of the main strands of filming making that I do is making documentaries and particularly short documentaries mm. uh, uh, and being able to do it mostly on my own mm. you need to practice a lot you yeah. need to keep your reflexes up and um, and so photography is kind of like a more kind of relaxing, right. non-pressured version of doing that. Yep, yep. Um, is that because of the ephemeral nature of the documentary filmmaking? It's not like you can ask people to go and do that again. You've sort of, you've got to see it, you've got to capture it. It's got to be well-lit, well-framed, well-recorded, there's audio, there's all sorts of things going on. Is it all of that technical element as well as the creative part of it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the technical melds in with the, the creative aspects of it. Yes. Um, but it, it's in, um, filming documentary well and in a really uh, affective way or in uh, a really, in the style that I like to do anyway, where things feel observed mm. and, um, and uh, feel authentically observed, but where you film it in such a way that you can kind of manipulate the flow of time and the audience's attention in a way to really keep drawing them through the story that you're trying to tell mm. um, is, you know... There's so many different things going on mm -hmm. uh, at the same time that the that the more that you practice, uh, the the those fundamental skills, the better. So you know, uh, like I'm thinking about light all the time, and yes. um, and a lot of the time when I'm filming people, I want them to become less conscious of my presence. Mm. Um, and so that they find themselves in the moment, not necessarily performing for me, mm. for example. Um, I want to make sure that I get good sound um, because in documentary you can have ordinary pictures but you can't have crap sound. No, it's funny, example. isn't it? Mm. The eye seems to be more forgiving than the ear or something. 
Mm. Well. Although I bet you'd argue that you'd like the um, the visuals to be first rate as well. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, if you look up in the walls there, you can see some of the photographs that I've taken on I assignments. Know. Yeah. There. Um, to a T, they're all incredible. Yeah, and it's really, it's really quite difficult, you know, some of those scenarios that I've been in. So um, if you look over your shoulder there, you can see some photographs of uh, from New Orleans, New Orleans yeah. uh, of some Mardi Gras Indians, yeah. um, a, a youth tribe of Mardi Gras Indians. That That's a photograph that I took uh, in between filming a story about them and, you know, it was really loud. It was raining. I, I had to change my, my lens uh, three times because there's so much humidity that it was fogging up on the inside and on the outside. Um, I had my camera rigged up with uh, three different microphones on it because there's a lot of um, drumming, and so I wanted to get different kind of um, sound perspectives wow. so that so that you could... You know, if if you have a certain kind of sort of really focused mic, the drums just sound like popcorn, for example. Yeah, so, right. Um, uh, and uh, it was when people first started shooting with uh, these full-frame DSLR cameras, yeah. which are significant in the ability to get really shallow cinematic depth of field. Mm. Um, and so I was trying to keep everybody manually in focus the whole time. Yes. Um, so that's, you know, when I talk about keeping reflexes up, yeah. that, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And working on the small screen on the back of it, or did you have an external screen for that? I know exactly what you're talking about. Focus is a, a nightmare out in the field in very lighting conditions. It's very yeah. difficult. So at that time I had a, a viewfinder which clamped on magnetically on the back of my camera. Right. That's how I did it. Right. Yeah. Wow. I've seen you working and you seem to have this mercurial element where you, um, you're you everywhere at once and yet you're not in the road or you're, you don't become the focus. It's um, You're like liquid. It's quite incredible to watch you work. Um, is that just something that has always been with you? You're physical, I guess, in a way, but, but life. Is that something that you've always been? Is that you naturally or have you found that that was the way also to get these results where people are comfortable with you and, and almost don't know that you're there? That's a quality that I've, I think, developed over time right. through practice. Yeah. I haven't always been like that. Um, I was really shy mm. as a early teenager. Uh, you know, and one of the things that I like about the camera taking photographs and filming is that it is a excuse for you to go out and meet people and um, it kind of gives you a raison d'etre to be there and to socialize with people mm -hmm. uh, or to fade into the background and take pictures. Mm. Um, you know, I think maybe what you've... Um, witnessed of me at work there um, is when I first took up filmmaking 
you know, after I'd finished university, I spent a, a year on the dole, um, playing with uh, my band and getting involved in fringe theater. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't really sure where I was going to go from there. Um, and one of the people I was in play with suggested I apply to film school. So oh. um, I then um, got on a train and went to um, Melbourne to go to the VCA um, School of Film and Television, mm. or it was called Swinburne back then. Mm-hmm. And I was trained in drama, directing. Uh, and so when you've seen my style of filming, mm. um, although... Uh, I primarily like to film documentary. Mm. Uh, I like to get the get the sort of drama coverage style coverage or shots, mm. um, and and film in such a way that feels almost like it's been filmed for drama. Mm. So you know, filming you know just from behind somebody's head, somebody else talking and it kind of puts the viewer, feels like they're, um, you know, somebody else standing mm. in the environment mm. rather than removed or yeah. getting reaction shots of people who are then listening to that person. Um, and so uh, over so much time and practice, I, I'd say that I've developed really good instincts Mm. for knowing when I've got what I need to tell the story and then to go and get the other kinds of shots or frames that uh, that that I need to help um, get you know the the collection of shots that I need to to be able to create a sequence for mm. example do people call that b-roll or is it a bit that's too simplistic uh, I think that's too simplistic. I've yeah. always hated the term B-roll. Right. Um, because um, a lot of, a lot of um, um, really conventional uh, documentary or mm-hmm. news magazine type stories, you get an interview and then you get B-roll or overlay <laughs> that you just cut along to, you know, yeah, people yeah. talking. Yeah. Um, and I I do particularly love um, uh, filming and cre- creating sequences where you feel like you're um, naturally flowing through mm. a, uh, uh, a, a a a scenario mm. that tells a story. So, for example, one yeah, of my f- makes sense. Yeah, one mm. of my favorite films is uh, I went off on, on assignment to Colombia, mm-hmm. and. Uh, to the the far west coast of Colombia, where Afro-Colombians live, mm-hmm. and they they were uh, historically um, escaped uh, slaves from the Spanish gold mines, etc. Oh, yeah. And I wanted to create like a uh, a portrait of their community and life in the village. Um, and the reasons why I wanted to do that are, are, um, are um, I was going to say complicated, not really complicated, but I'll, I could talk about them later. But the way that I filmed a lot of the uh, sequences was so, so that you felt like you were experiencing village life 
uh, in real time where you're kind of segueing from one moment to the next. Yep. So um, there was a tradition there called the Minga, where because there's no government services or you know there's no shopping malls even, people mm. just get around by boats. Yeah, right. they, they have to go out onto the beach in order to get uh, internet on the phone uh, or get any reception. Um, and so they, they, if they needed to harvest some crops that they planted in the jungle or clean the village, they'd, they'd have a community uh, gathering and then somebody would go out with a megaphone on the streets and say, it's time for a cleaning, it's time for a minga. And everybody would come out and they'd start cleaning up the village, cutting back the grass, yeah. um, picking up all the... Uh, plastic and the bottle tops that had blown in from the great plastic sort of flotilla yeah. somewhere out on the Pacific. Oh, my goodness. And then they'd start listening to music on the big sound system that's at the centre of the village and start drinking and dancing. Wow. And so, um, you know, you, you can imagine with all that going on, mm. um, you could film that in a way which kind of makes you feel like you're hopefully feel like you're a participant or mm. that you're mm. kind of almost experiencing that in a yeah. in a visceral way rather yeah. than interview that tells you about it and then b-roll cutaway footage yeah I, I understand yeah i understand completely um how had you heard about that village and what got what got you there okay a bit of context <laughs> um uh I had a job as the mentor of an international travel filmmaking scholarship that's run by a travel insurance company called World Nomads. Yeah. And one of their ways of promoting themselves but also giving back is to, is to have a competition where the winner, the, the prize is to go out on a filmmaking assignment with uh, somebody like me. Yeah. Um, and so they decide on the destination. Sometimes I might suggest it. Right. Um, like I, I really wanted to go to New Orleans one year. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Cheeky. Cheeky. <laughs> Mind you, good subject. Good subject. Well, I'd yeah. watched, uh, one of my favorite TV series was called Treme. Treme. Yeah. We loved Treme. As soon as I uh, watched Treme, yeah. I wanted to go there. <laughs> they, they chose Columbia. Yeah. And um, they had a production team uh, that was based in Bogota, and they suggested a researcher. And they, they started, uh, this researcher started pitching potential ideas at me mm -hmm. or at us. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we went there, the person I was mentoring shot one story. Oh, wow. And I shot another one. Oh, nice. And, and the reason, the premise for us being there in the first place is that that region of Columbia is really vulnerable to um, exploitation mm -hmm. of, you know, extraction of minerals and minerals. resources. They have a lot of gas under the sea floor. Oh, uh, most of the world's cocaine traffic gets yep. goes along the coast there. Mm -hmm. um, we figured if we helped in some small way mm. putting them on the map in terms of uh, sustainable 
tourism and travel mm. and stuff like that, mm. that that reputation could help them sort of fend off some of that stuff. Yeah. Is it too early to know whether that was a successful thing? It's too early, you know, mm. in, in the, the long scheme of things. Yeah. Um, but the other film that we made about um, w- is about a, you know, a social project um, where local kids get to participate in a surf club and a surf, surf skills training right. project. And they can only go to it if they uh, have a good attendance record at school. Oh, yeah. uh, and that won an international peace and tourism award um, just uh, uh, about a year and a half ago. Oh. Uh, and apparently that's going great guns. Right, right. Uh, you know, and, and I think that that's been quite successful. And, you know, mm. in, in that particular small area, um, it helps you know, um, mentor and create a potential career for mm. Mm. for some of these kids being involved in, you know, the surf tourism industry there or to become professional surfers themselves uh, as a really viable alternative to making cash in... Sure. Nefarious activity. Nefarious activity, yeah. 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 Oh, my goodness, what a struggle. The... Um, was it just one kid you were mentoring on that project, or were there quite a few people involved? Uh, no, there's just one guy. Yeah. Yeah. What was that um, experience like, and and what was it like to share your skill set and your creativity with someone? Mm, that's a difficult question. Is it? <laughs> I don't know how quite to explain it. Um, was this person keen on filmmaking and photography and yeah. oh, very an much. aptitude? Yeah, oh, very much so. Right. Yeah. Um, I really, over various assignments, um, really well developed my approach to mentoring people. Right. And that one being one of the earlier ones, um, I was a bit more uh, hands-off and helping set up the situation, but kind of letting him um, do his, you know, go and do his thing. Yeah. Um, where I think from that point on, I um, we developed a way where we would, in, in, and in that case, he worked on one project and mm. I worked on another project mm-hmm. it wasn't meant to be that way we had to evacuate him suddenly because he found out that his uh, dad was critically ill right. and so the the mentoring process didn't occur as as we had intended right you know so that's why i'm a bit hesitant about yeah, talking yeah. about that one right um where after that we decided that we'd both you know the person that i was mentoring we'd both work on the same film and right. and uh because this, we need to sort of, um, we always research a project in advance, mm-hmm. and we need to kind of hit the ground running. That I would start by the the mentoring process by basically uh, modeling how to do it into, mm-hmm. you know, taking the directorial and the technical role from the start, and then gradually 
uh, hand over those yes. skills and responsibilities to them till yeah. the end when they actually kind of manifest the the directing and the interviewing and the camera work mostly on their own. Has that largely been successful? Yes, particularly in the last two projects that we worked on. And what's that like when you see someone just get it and just start running with the the ideas and really succeeding, I guess? Yeah, look, it's wonderful. You know, that that approach is about setting them up for success, really. Mm. And, you know, they, they take on that role, you know, they, they manifest those, those skills, um, when they're ready for it Mm. on assignment and, you know, uh, over the course of 14 really intense days, Mm. um, of shooting, we know that we've got the story and we know that, um, that, that they can do, do that job. Mm. Mm. Um, and then the next stage starts, which is a whole different kettle of fish, which is the editing. Yeah. I was interested to talk to you about that because I'm imagining that, and I'm hearing from what you're saying, that you have everything that you do is incredibly well thought out and very well researched and then you go out and you get those shots and you're thinking about so much while you're doing them. And I imagine you do have the end product in mind to a degree and you must be thinking about the edit while you're shooting them. But then when you get to the edit, what happens then? Is there a lot of chance and opportunity then too? Or what's that process like for you? Well, they say... A film is made in the the writing of it. Yeah, three ways, made, right? Yeah, and then it's made in the film, actual filming of it, yeah. and then it's made again in the editing of it. Yeah. Do you subscribe? Oh yes. Yeah. And I just want to digress a bit from what yeah. you said before. Absolutely. Is that a lot of my favorite films that I've made have not been overly planned. Oh, you know, okay. Um, I'd say that the framework for thinking about them is well thought through, you yeah. know, what, what the underlying premise of the project is. Yeah. Um, uh, but how it plays out isn't a kind of a, a play by, you know, by numbers no, kind I, of process. I sold that wrong, I think, yeah. Um, yeah. And so There's nothing creative in what I just described because you're just going out and hitting a shot list and at the end of the day you go tick, tick, tick. No, I understand that's not the way you work. Yeah, so so I'll, mm. I'll give you an example mm. of the way that I plan yeah. for shooting. Yeah. If you look over on the wall there, you see what I call a mind map, yep. you know. Yep. And in the centre is the basic premise. Yeah. And that says things, things to do other than Facebook. Yes. <laughs> and actually that's a um, largely a list of creative things that I want to allocate my time for. Yeah. Um, but then there's things in circles and there's things that arrow off little tributaries and the like as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when I'm planning a project, I usually try to sketch out right. around the central idea or the the premise or whatever and yeah. you know what are all the different elements mm. that I want to follow through mm. and often those elements are embodied in the characters or the people that I'm following mm. you know, who I have cast in this real life 
story mm. um, and I have a, a good idea of, you know, thematically what they might represent in mm. the story that I'm, uh, I'm working on. So, mm. um, you know, but for you're, example, al- you're alive to chance and to the happy accident as well and alert for anything that and in, it can go in any direction too, I bet. Yeah, that's right. If you have a good conceptual framework, mm, you know, mm. then you've got a solid base to work from or to depart from when yeah. things. And it's not too scary to depart, I guess, um, to a degree. Well, when you're working in kind of short form documentary, you know, the the stakes are less high than if you've uh, got a you know a budget of hundreds of thousands of dollars and a broadcaster who wants you to fulfill a really detailed plan uh, mm-hmm. just saying mm-hmm. um, a lot of commercial documentaries i think suffer for um you know just being exercises in fulfilling a preconceived yes. notion yeah. of a story that you want to make yeah yeah so it comes to the edit then and wow oh back to the edit yes yeah. Um, it's a big question. Uh, I'm actually reading a book about intuitive editing at the moment by yeah. a great um, Australian editor and academic named Karen Perlman. Mm-hmm. And uh, you guys might want to look it up if you want. Um, yeah, we can put that in the notes. Yeah. Uh, so I think of editing as a as a process of discovering the story within the footage that you've actually filmed. Right. And so over years I've sort of worked the discipline of trying to uh, forget all the intentions and hopes that I had for what I was filming in the yes, film. Yes, And Does and that stop you having to have favourite things must be in the end and... The, and the output suffers because you just get attached to things. Is that the idea? You're trying to divorce yourself from that idea? Yeah, absolutely. There's an overarching story that you need to tell. Mm. And um, you have to you have to put that at the forefront, really. Mm. Uh, and so you need to discover, you know, the trajectory through mm. all the material that you, you filmed that's mm. going to serve that main purpose. And I find increasingly that if there's great material or great sequences that we filmed, that we cut those out and then we make little vignette stories that get shown on social media anyway. So, I, you yeah, know, I don't feel right. precious about them because... Right. Um, but, yeah, so... You know, the the editing process, uh, editing, I think of it as a process that you need to give yourself over to uh, and not rush, mm. that you first of all need to watch everything, mm. hopefully without preconceptions of how you shot it. Yes. Um, and then, and then, you know, step back and, and on paper primarily, try to make a, a sense of it in terms of a story and try to block it out right. on paper. Right. I, I also do this sort of drawing a picture you yeah. know, in the way that I, in my particular way of needing to visualise things in, mm. a, in a schematic way. Mm. 
and then I start to um, test it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and often what I do is I've got a particular approach, which I encourage the people I mentor to do, is to, you know, not spend too much time on it, but to try to edit the beginning, the start, or the introduction, or the hook to the story yep. uh, as a way of kind of, you know, setting off the trajectory of the film mm. and to establish the voice and the style mm. of the piece, mm. um, but not try not to nail it, you know, just get it enough of a start to feel like it's um, going to work. Mm. And then I try to edit a lot of it in a non-linear way. I don't try to start at the beginning of the story and finish it at the end of the story. I start to work on um, what I think are key thematic moments within the film. Right. And to make, you know, basically the play to the strength of those moments. Yep. And then build outward from those various moments or beats within the film. Right. Um, and then try to, and then try to uh, see how it all fits together. Right. What do you do when you hit a block or what do you do when it's not working? Do you just take a break? Do you go, what, what's, your, what, what's your technique? Uh, I get some trusted people in the room and uh-huh. I get them to watch it with me. Yeah. And having somebody who is not yourself and experiencing them watching your material quickly, um, I think, can put it into perspective or give you new inspiration. Yeah, well, you know, you there's a I think a discipline that uh, as a filmmaker you need to develop about divorcing yourself from your hopes and intentions, mm. um, and try to experience what you're editing, you know, with by putting your ego aside mm. and seeing in trying to approximate how somebody else, you know, an audience yeah. will, will read it. Yeah. Um, and it's really, it can be really difficult to do and, and having other people in the room watching it with you really mm. helps. Mm. Um, but also, you know, filmmaking should be a collaborative media medium. Yeah. Two or three brains are, are better than one mm. always. Mm. Um, and so over time I've, um, got friends and collaborators and particularly my partner Fee, Mm. uh, who I, um, trust to watch and, uh, and give, um, feedback, you know, Mm. hopefully honest, just, um, straight up. Yeah, reaction to yeah to what you're doing. Yeah, that um, that working with people that you can trust and the collaborative element is is rich, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Otherwise, if I'm working on my own, sometimes I set something aside, go for a walk, mm. um, work on another sequence that might be just fun, mm. and. Um, and then come back to where I was blocked later. Yes, right, right. And is that largely effective? Do you find yourself thinking of solutions on the side or they come? Yeah, usually. Mm. Um, 
you know, what I do, it's uh, deadline yeah, oriented. They so have to eventually, don't, don't they? I don't have a choice. <laughs> um, and, and so that, that can really help, mm. you know, at that, you know, at that pointy end. Mm. Um, so, you know, I do get really blocked up often, mm. um, but that's usually in the earlier stages of the process where right. it's just a bit too unformed and you're kind of feeling a bit anxious about, oh, my God, I shot all this stuff. Is it ever going to work? Mm. Um, and uh, so usually it's a process of uh, reassuring myself by just saying, look, you just need to watch the material, mm. play with it. Um, uh there's often interviews involved and it's going and whittling down interviews or mm. um, the process of tagging or writing notes or whatever and and um, try not to be, you know, so result-driven in your head from the start mm. but kind of hopefully trusting the process. Um, mm. What a lot of... Um a lot of great uh, advice there for someone who would be making films too and I mean I do a little bit of video editing I'm it's uh, it's wonderful to hear your approach <laughs> it's revelatory <laughs> um, that's just the process for I'd say editing more documentary like stuff yeah yeah um, where in more recent times I've been doing more uh, short film and now I'm, I'm working on a on a feature film mm. Uh, in a completely different way, but I've also edited a lot of drama, and the, you know, the, the working process is different. Mm. What I want to say about um, creativity or the craft skills involved, yeah, be it um, taking photographs or camera operating, and all of that sort of stuff, is that. I find this idea um, of what's called a, a second nai naivety yeah, really uh, really helpful. Mm -hmm. um, and somebody only told me about the concept. I haven't read about it, um, but I've kind of activated it in my, for my own self quite a lot. Um, it, I think it came from a philosopher named Racour, mm -hmm. perhaps. The second naivety is it's what happens when you have read and studied and practiced in a really kind of in-your-head conscious um, uh, way mm -hmm. and you think about things in a quite perhaps a quite an intellectual or mm. hands-on way. And, and the second naivety comes... You know, when you leave that stage behind and maybe leave that thinking through that craft for a while and you might put it aside and then when you come back to it, you actually, because you're not trying to think about how to do it better all the time, but you've kind of um, um, naturalized yourself to the skills and the way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And so I, I find this, you know, with my photography and my filmmaking all the time is that I, I go through all sorts of, di of phases, you know, over the years of, um, you know, trying to master particular technical things or mm. uh, uh, how to, um, 
you know, particular craft skills or or um, uh, an approach to filming or whatever. And that when I come back to it later, it feels intuitive and natural, but it's really well cultivated sometime in the past. Mm. Um, and that hopefully, you know, there's just kind of this wellspring of knowledge that you're not necessarily thinking of or mm. skill or whatever that you're kind of activating when mm. when it's when it's really ne- re- needed needed yeah mm. Mm. that um, cha- that ability to uh, find the simple in things too just because you have that skill set I guess too and um, it's not complicated by the technical element or the overthinking mm. remarkable thing that's why I like why I like to at least think of photography as practice for everything else because mm. it's not as technically layered as, you know, video editing or right. cinematography or whatever. Yeah. So I just find it so pleasurable to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and like all these sort of skills, um, they help activate my just pleasure of seeing and looking at the world or listening or mm. or whatever yeah experiencing as well yeah i think you've answered it the entire um podcast but what is creativity brian well i don't think you want to open the door and um shine light on the magic mm. too mm. much mm. uh but I think creativity is something that you um, hopefully uh, uh, really enjoy and love. I think of it more as a kind of a a process mm. that I keep engaging mm. in, in where kind of creativity kind of springs out of it. Mm. Well, as I said to you when we started um, chatting about this podcast that I've been um, able to watch your work and I've been able to look at all of um, the things that you do and make and there's this beautiful thread through them and this beautiful vision and this look. It's really remarkable. Thank you for chatting with me today. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Uh, I just want to say, you know, one of the favorite things about you that I love is you come to some of the the house concerts at our place and what I love is actually watching you listen to music because I can tell that you're kind of fully engaged and involved yeah, in the experience yeah, yeah. Uh, and that you kind of probably love music more than I do. <laughs> oh, yeah, look, it's a physical thing for me, yeah. I can't sit still or anything like that, you know. I'm not really a passive listener of music or absorber of music yeah 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 no you're right <laughs> <laughs> uh, and i'm completely unaware of course too um of what i'm doing i'm just uh, captivated by by performance yeah and meanwhile I, i'm over in there in the corner just sort of clocking that yeah <laughs> thinking wow <laughs> oh well we're clocking each other from uh, from the corner of our eye <laughs> Oh, Brian, thank you very much. My pleasure. Well, you've been listening to Getting It Down, conversations about creativity. I hope you enjoyed what you heard, and please tell your friends about it. That would be lovely. 
Remember to subscribe and join us for the next exciting episode.